Hello, this is Tom Wilmoth with The Vinyl Approach, episode 21. A few weeks ago, I spoke of monaural, or mono, sound. I intended for that episode to also address the realm of quadraphonic sound, but things kind of got out of hand with the mono discussion. So let's talk about it today. Quad was a short-lived format that struggled to gain acceptance in the mid-1970s. A quadraphonic recording consisted of four distinct tracks playing a selection of music where stereo uses two tracks, placing instruments and vocals into different speakers, quad used four. So it took four speakers and a special amplifier to play these quad recordings. The results could be remarkable, but the format never caught on. Unlike battles between physical formats, like cassette versus eight-track tape, quadraphonic sound was an attempt to introduce a new way of hearing music. Unlike the later videotape format wars of Beta versus VHS, which VHS won, the battle over introducing quadraphonic sound into the marketplace had no winner. The public wanted videotape, but they decided that quadraphonic sound was not a necessity. They could get along fine with stereo. The challenge for manufacturers of quad recordings was to convince the public that if stereo was good, quad was better. It wasn't a horrible idea, in theory distinct separated sound to ensure a clear listening experience, but now with four channels instead of stereo's two channels. Proponents of the format said that with quad, all aspects of the recording could be heard, every instrument. Nothing would be buried in the mix. And it was true. Only once did I hear a demonstration of true quadraphonic sound. The audio salesman played the Guess Who's song American Woman, and there was complete separation. Every instrument distinct, coming from separate speakers placed in different corners of the room. I stood in the middle of the four speakers and was mesmerized. I'm not saying I would want to hear my music in this configuration all the time, but on that day it seemed very cool. But quad seemed to me even then to be more of a novelty than a regular way to hear music. I never considered getting involved with quad. I was still questioning my decision to go as deep as I had with eight-track tapes. And speaking of 8-track tapes, this was one of two ways that quad music could truly be experienced, and the least expensive. Records could not offer truly discrete or distinctly separated four-channel sound. Tape could. The industry tried to downplay the fact that vinyl record albums were inferior to tape for reproducing true quad, but it was true. Records could only approximate the distinct separation of the four quad tracks. Vinyl could be good, but not as good as tape and records were by far the largest selling format for pre-recorded music in the mid-1970s. A quandary. Four-channel eight-track tape and quad reel-to-reel -reel tape did sound better than vinyl. However, reel tape was already beginning to go away by this time, and reel equipment was always notoriously expensive. By the 1970s, reel-to-reel -reel tape was in the process of being replaced by the far more convenient and inexpensive cassette tape, a format not suitable for quad. Almost by default, then, the 8-track tape cartridge was the best and most practical way to experience true quadraphonic sound. This was somewhat of a paradox, since quad appealed to audiophiles, and audiophiles were not 8-track enthusiasts. Most thought of themselves as being above this curious format. But 8-track tape was where the best-sounding quad was found. A quick review. A regular 8-track tape cartridge contained four stereo programs, or eight different tracks. A quad recording could use the same physical cartridge, but instead of having four stereo programs, it would hold two quadraphonic programs of four channels each, still totaling eight tracks. 
Using four instead of two tracks meant that for any given album, the amount of tape would be twice as much in a quad cartridge as for its stereo counterpart. And, as discussed in a previous vinyl approach, more tape in a cartridge often meant more trouble. Part of the problem with even quad enthusiasts getting involved with this format was different companies' inability to agree on a standardized playback system. There were many types of home quad units a person could buy. Most were fairly expensive, and each claimed superior sound. The companies themselves ignored the fact that these different systems were rarely compatible with one another, and as such problematic for customers. Of the machines to choose from, there was SQ Matrix from CBS, QS Matrix from Sansui, as well as Matrix H, CD4, DynaQuad, Stereo 4, and many others. Names for the new record format for each label were equally perplexing. Columbia's were called SQ Quadraphonic, RCA had the Quadradisc, ABC had Command Quadraphonic. You get the idea. Each record company had its own quad process and the companies had various playback systems. Lots of money was at stake which led to an unwillingness for companies to collaborate in solving the problem of system-wide incompatibility. Battle lines were drawn. Because there was no set standard, listening choices could be limited no matter what system you brought home. Amazing as it sounds, no one machine would play all of the different labels' quad recordings. Maybe your newly purchased system was compatible with Columbia recordings, so you could hear Janus and Moby Grape in quad, but the unit could not play RCA releases, so you could not hear any Jefferson Airplane. And maybe neither of these units would play Steely Dan or Jimi Hendrix. It was a huge drawback, and one that the industry tried not to mention to their potential customers. But even while the public was either confused or indifferent about this new listening experience, some musicians got way off into it. Ian Anderson enjoyed mixing his older Jethro Tull albums for Quad. I recall seeing a Quad reel-to-reel tape of the Allman Brothers at the Fillmore East. I would have listened to that. I know Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon was mixed for Quad, as was Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. Those could be fun. If someone wanted to take a look at the various quad products on the market in the mid-1970s, I would point them to the pages of Stereo Review and High Fidelity Magazine from that era. The ads for competing quad systems found within these pages are numerous. But my awareness of the format came largely from the many ads for quad that companies placed in National Lampoon. Rolling Stone? Some, but National Lampoon seemed to be filled with ads for quad products, bought by audio manufacturers like Fisher, Marantz, and Sony. The quad battles raged for several years in the mid-1970s, but, to repeat, it was a war that nobody won. Let me stress that the failure of quad in the marketplace had nothing to do with mono-purists that populate today's listening landscape. In the mid-1970s, there were no champions of mono sound. Maybe Phil Spector, but otherwise, beginning in the late 1960s, stereo recordings were the only format available and the only one anybody wanted. Nobody thought a thing about it. We were excited when we bought a single that was pressed in stereo. That was a bonus. The one time when stereo became an irritant, as I said in an earlier podcast, was when a record that was originally recorded in mono was issued in reprocessed or fake stereo. By 1976, industry panic concerning quadraphonic sales had set in. Pioneer was paying big money for celebrity endorsements. Enlisted in print ads for Pioneer Quad units were A-list rock names like Greg Allman and Elton John. Even Andy Warhol cashed a check to endorse these Quad units. Pioneer could have saved its money, 
1978, quad was dead. Quad amplifiers were no longer manufactured, and quad records and tapes were being deleted from label catalogs. Magazine ads no longer touted the wonders of quadraphonic sound. Stereo remained king. As failure seemed imminent, I saw a story in Billboard magazine. The industry realized that Quad was in trouble. It was not catching on with the public. Quad systems, records, and tapes were sitting in stores going unbought. This Billboard article pleaded with the different manufacturers of Quad to stop pushing their own specific version and focus the public's attention on the concept of Quad. It didn't work. The Quad competition between manufacturers continued, and Quadraphonic sound sank with hardly a trace. Even now, a discussion of Quad is confusing. For a potential customer of the 1970s, asked to spend a lot of money to replace their sound system, it could be overwhelming. Overwhelming to the point of deciding to live with the stereo system they already owned. I knew only one person who owned a Quad setup. It was the boyfriend of a cousin of mine, several years my senior. He had a Zenith unit, a combination turntable, radio, and Quad 8-track player, plus four speakers. I was impressed that he was so cutting-edge. When I asked how he liked the quadraphonic sound, he had no idea what I was talking about. And as I looked at his records and tapes, it was true, not a quad recording in the stack. Then I noticed that he only had two speakers attached to the amplifier. The other two were on the floor of his closet. The small joystick used to balance the four channels of quad sound was in there as well. He had a quad unit, but he was using it like a stereo. It was more complicated than he cared to get involved with or to learn about. And that summarizes a big part of the format's failure, I think, confusion and indifference. Just as very few people had complained about fake stereo, most didn't care about quad. They didn't listen that closely, so fidelity and sound separation didn't matter much to them. Can you imagine? Forty-five years after the failed introduction of quad sound, some current-day audio enthusiasts attempt to return to that era. The problems with getting involved with quad today are many. Old amplifiers and tape decks must be used. There are no recent quad releases, and something I have discussed before, the fickle nature of the 8-track tape cartridge. Even if a person did find a working quad tape player, and that's a big if, he would still need to depend on quad 8-track tapes to play in the unit, assuming that true quad was the goal. These players are now all close to 50 years old, as are the tapes. If shopping eBay, plan on paying several hundred dollars for an amplifier and for a tape player. And I suggest you find somebody who can change the belts on the unit and repair it when it breaks, which it will. Then, of course, you'll want to buy some quad 8-tracks to play. eBay has Jethro Tull's War Child for $35. Santana's Caravan Sarai is $50. Janis Joplin's Pearl, $40. So the tapes are out there, but they are still 8-tracks, a format born to self-destruct. Investing in reel-to-reel -reel quad is for the wealthy. The real tape decks run between $800 and $1,200. Compared with the available number of quad 8-track cartridges, there are few quad reel-to-reel -reel tapes available, and the ones that are for sale are crazy expensive. I see a quad reel tape of the Allman Brothers' Eat a Peach album going for $500, and the seller will get it. And ah yes, a quad 8-track copy of Dark Side of the Moon? There is one such 8-track available right now online for just under $700. It's considered a bargain. Quadraphonic sound, what a concept. I suppose the new crop of mono enthusiasts really hate this idea. So let me give this group a little support by quoting from the recent Beatles documentary by Peter Jackson. 
George Harrison brings his personal multi-track tape machine into the studio for help with the troubled recording process. His playback system includes four speakers. George laughs when he recounts how an Abbey Road audio engineer had questioned him about this setup, saying, four speakers, but you've only got two ears. That's funny, but the BBC technician should have known better. The idea of multi-channel sound was not new. In 1940, for the initial run of his experimental movie Fantasia, Walt Disney had movie theaters specially equipped with his own Fantasound, a multi-channel audio system. The 1970s, though, was the first time that this technology was offered to the public for home entertainment. Whether 1940 or 1975, audio logistics remained the same. It seems to me that a person would need to be sitting in a very specific part of the movie theater to enjoy or even hear all of the multi-channel music of Fantasia. This was also true with Quad in the 70s and posed another major hurdle. There was only a limited area of any room where the Quad experience would be effective, where the sound of the four speakers intersect. And this assumes that the owner has arranged the speakers in a manner that's properly displayed. In many rooms, proper stereo imaging just for two speakers can be problematic. For quad sound, it could prove insurmountable. Actually, the sweet spot for a quad sound system was best for one person, located directly in the center of the four speakers. But even this presents a problem concerning a realistic listening experience. How many times have you been sitting in the middle of a band while they played? Unless you were in the band, I am guessing not very often. Please forgive me if I seem to be whipping a format that has already failed and is largely forgotten. Maybe I sound scornful because I yearn to own a quad system. I want a room dedicated specifically to a quad sound system with one chair sitting in the direct center of the four speakers. And I want all of the quad eight tracks I have mentioned today, and more. But I don't have a designated quad room in my house, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. Even so, I am fascinated by what was attempted with this quadraphonic sound experiment, and by the results that still echo down the corridors of audio history. Maybe quad will make a comeback. Record albums did. Once thought dead, albums returned. They are now called vinyl. Nothing is impossible, but until the quad format makes a return to the marketplace, plan to spend a lot of money and deal with a lot of frustrations if you do decide to go down the rabbit hole of quadraphonic sound. In any event, good luck with it, and happy listening. This has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Sound Bites, A Lifetime of Listening. Sound Bites is available on Amazon. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time. <music>